The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. I think it makes sense that in our work this course, this 11-week class, where we're looking at the mind and these maps of the mind, that uh, we need to reflect deeply about uh, just the very nature of the investigation itself and what it, what it is that we mean by mind, even. I remember Joseph Goldstein, one of my teachers, saying that it's, I think I mentioned this last week or the first week, but that it's more about what you don't find than what you do find. And uh, it's also, as I try to point out in the guidance tonight, um, it's not like there's our mind, right? In the same way that we can mistake this for a self, we can mistake the mind as some continuous entity. But instead, it's more useful to think about the mind. There's a mind in every moment, shaped or colored in a particular way or not. Maybe it's just an uncolored, unshaped mind revealing more of its empty <coughs> qualities than conditioned qualities of dullness or aversion or greediness or doubt or you know whatever quality it might have, whatever coloring it might have. So there's a mind and this mind is arises in each moment to know whatever it is that's being known in the moment. And so, in any moment of experience, we could be interested in the so-called object that's being known, or we could be interested in the mind that's knowing the object. But it's really the same moment that's being known. It's sort of a different facet of the present moment experience. Are we tuning in to the specific characteristics of the touch, the sight, the sound, the content of the thought that's being known? Are we tuning in to that it's being known by this mind? There's a mind that's knowing this, and that mind is this mind. So you know in the <coughs> in the Satipatthana Sutta, this discourse, probably a collection of teachings from the Buddha that was compiled after the time of the Buddha. It's not clear, but seems like scholars are feeling more comfortable with that understanding of the Satipatthana, that it wasn't like one talk that the Buddha gave, but um, somebody at some point organizing some of the teachings the Buddha gave around mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, the feeling tone, the pleasantness or unpleasantness of any experience, mindfulness of the mind, and mindfulness of these maps of the mind, like um, mapping out how the mind understands, really, or how the mind's understanding is affected. Sort of the elements of one's view. That's that fourth category or fourth way of being mindful. And it's really just, I mean, the, the, the sutta, this collection of teachings on mindfulness, 
It's really just saying, dividing up this in different ways. So this moment, we could, like if I highlight the body in this moment, there's no way that my awareness of the body or my knowing of the body doesn't include mind and feeling tone and these maps that we're talking about, like whether the hindrances are present in the mind that's knowing my body or whether the factors of awakening like good energy or joy or tranquility are present as I'm knowing my body. So they're not really four different things. They're just four angles on this. On any moment of experience, the four satipatthanas, the four establishments, four foundations of awareness, they're just here. There's different ways... You know, we have to play in this world of skillful means. It can be a little troubling, I think, for some, because we have, some of us have experiences, insights, you know, and one of the leftover flavors of those insights is it's really simple. I don't know, can't say what it is, can't tell you what the truth is, but I'm pretty, I have pretty strong intuition it's simple. It's not complicated, Right? But even though the truth, the insights that we have, have this flavor of simplicity, to um, you know, the work we're doing isn't about truth as it is. The work we're doing is supporting the unraveling of delusion, right? Because the truth's already, you know, the sort of nature of things, the, the nature of things that have no problem, never had a problem, that's already okay. So our practice isn't about sort of the underlying perfection of all things. Our practice is about getting different angles on what the mind is not clear about. Right? We're learning to be clear about something the mind's not clear about. And so the wisdom part of practice, I mean, there's the whole samadhi part of practice, which is creating an instrument that can get interested, is stable enough to be interested and use these different skillful means, different ways of seeing what the mind isn't currently seeing clearly. So that's why it seems complicated. That's why there's, you know, however many volumes of the teachings of the Buddha, and then so many more volumes of, of commentaries, and it was a little frightening. We've transferred some of, you know, our Dharma talks on our website to the Dharma Seed website, which is organized by some volunteers, originally out at IMS. They're still out in that area. Uh, but it's all the talks from people who regularly teach at Spirit Rock and IMS. And so now all of our talks are there. Common Grounds talks are sort of embedded there. And uh, I didn't know, but now it's like I could see how many talks, how many times I've talked about the Buddhist teachings, like it's in the 600s. <laughs> I felt a little embarrassed. It's like, that's, that's saying a lot. <laughs> I don't know how it got to be so high, but... <laughs> for something that's really simple. So keep that in mind because 
it's easy to be a little, like for some disgust or um, doubt about all the words or all the instructions. But it, it's ultimately not complicated, but the, the problem, the entanglement, is complex. But the truth isn't complex. So one of the ways that we deal with the complexity of our delusion is we learn to look at it from different angles. There's a principle in research called triangulation. I think it's just a scientific principle. You know, if you can look at something from three different points of view, you can, in a way, I don't know exactly how that principle works. It probably came originally from navigation. You know, when you look at a mountaintop from three different points of view, you learn something about its location, where that place is. Or if you can describe something from three different points of view, or you can have three people describe the same thing, right? You start to get a sense of what it is and what it isn't. So it's useful. Like when we're talking about this moment, you know, it's useful to say, well, I can tune into the body part, the physicality part, the five senses part of this experience, or I can tune into how it feels, is it pleasant or unpleasant, whatever the mind is knowing, or I can tune into the mind that's knowing, like how that's colored or shaped right now, or I can tune into experiencing this moment through the map, one of the maps that the Buddha taught, like it's just these six sense gates, or it's just the five aggregates, or it's just the dynamic of the Four Noble Truths, or it's the presence or absence of the hindrances, or the presence or absence of the seven factors of awakening. All in the service of getting a little bit more clear about what's here. And that's really each of our responsibility is to use these tools in a way that illuminate something that's not hasn't been fully illuminated yet. Isn't the mind's not fully clear. We're each responsible because otherwise we can take these tools and say, you know, we can just complain about them basically. So our job is to take them and to learn enough about them, you know, like mindfulness of the mind or mindfulness of feeling or whatever tool, and then try it out and see if we learn something about this, about the way it is, or dharma, in a way that's liberating, or in the direction of freedom, that supports the disentangling or the sort of illumination that everything's okay. So one of the things I thought I'd unpack today is this passage from the discourse that many of you have heard before, and I'll just uh, review it with all of us so that we start on the same page. Because I think it's really helpful to 
for me, it's a really useful way of thinking about mindfulness in terms of these three stages. And we've talked about it a little bit already. But you can, you know, we can, as I'm talking, as we're discussing, we can think about the mind in this way, like seeing the mind in and of itself. That's the first stage. So that passage that's repeated 13 times in this discourse. So for each meditation instruction, the Buddha is saying, you do the same thing. Whatever it is, whatever angle you're taking on the present moment, on Dharma, the way it is, you want to experience that that you're paying attention to in and of itself, not in terms of the world, not in terms of our idea about it, but can we be aware of it in and of itself? So that's not mediated by language, so non-conceptually. So what's the mind not confused by any idea we have of the mind? What's the experience of the mind? So there we were earlier, being aware of the breath coming in, being aware of the breath going out, being aware of the breath coming in. And so there is a mind knowing the breath coming in and a mind knowing the breath going out. And in fact, many minds knowing the breath coming in and out each time, right? And so, what is that as a, an experience when, in a sense, we shine the light, like the mind recognizes that there is a mind knowing the breath coming in, there is a mind knowing the breath going out, what's recognized in that moment? Not confused or distorted by the idea, that's my mind. Or whatever other label, like that's my angry mind. Or that's my greedy mind. What's the actual experience of the mind? And, and part of this first instruction too, uh, the Buddha says, um, internally, knowing the mind in and of itself, and externally, and both internally and externally. And the way that's, for me, is useful to understand this is, like I mentioned before, we can't really, there's nothing stands apart from anything else. So when we're paying attention to the mind, the sensations of the breath are right there, of course, because that's what the mind's knowing. And whatever feeling there is associated with knowing the breath coming in, that feeling's right there. It's not like somewhere else. So externally, knowing the breath, uh, knowing the mind, it just means like the relationship the mind that's knowing the breath has with the breath, has with the feeling, has with any of these maps that we use. See? It gets complicated. But we're just... Uh, if we don't have these teachings, um, what I notice is that awareness tends to get complacent. So, or the practice tends to be complacent. So the real purpose of hearing a talk like this, and it may be too much at one time, but the real purpose is to um, sort of bring in a little humility, like a sense of, I don't, I'm not seeing, I don't, like I'm missing something or I'm not seeing that. And this is especially true for those of you, like most of us, you know, we've been practicing for a while and we might start getting some 
tranquility at times. And it's just very easy to be complacent. One of the most challenging things is to be authentically interested in any kind of continuous way. It's really hard to be actually interested, like a child is interested when they're in new territory. You know, they're really naturally bright and alert and relaxed and, you know, happy to explore, look, smell, taste, put it in their mouth or whatever they do, ask questions. Is that how it is for us, you know, through each inhalation, through each exhalation? Because, you know, especially as lay people and especially when we're not on retreat, we're just trying to heal, mostly, right? We're just trying to heal what's gotten wound up and disturbed in the last 24 hours or since our last good set, like to settle things down. And, uh, you know, there's almost a sense of like smoothing out the internal structures of the heart and mind through samadhi, like kind of putting down the load and refreshing and evening out the mind again. And then we feel, okay, now I'm ready to move back into the world. And of course, that's good stuff. It's, there's nothing wrong with putting aside time to you know, go back to zero so that we can enter our world, our problematic world, our world of duties and responsibilities in a more even way, in a fresh way. But we want to make sure that at some point, and preferably in our daily sit even, that we're, we're doing some of this very primal investigation, using the mind to have insight, see something, learn something, open up to something that's new, that hasn't been seen before. So now the mind going forward, that mind, one mind conditioning the next mind, that's how in Buddhism we describe what's happening. It's one mind conditioning the next. Same at the time of death, supposedly. I don't know this, but you know, traditionally the teaching is that mind that aro- arises right at that moment of death conditions the next mind, wherever that, you know, however we might locate that mind, but it's conditioned by that mind at the moment of death, and on and on like that. So. The first training the Buddha invites us to do, one remains contemplating, sometimes it's translated as focused on the mind in and of itself, contemplating the mind in and of itself, knowing the mind in and of itself. And there are other words that are used here in this first stage. So you're knowing the mind in and of itself, ardent or diligent, um, mindful, the other word that's used here, alert. So this uh, um, clear comprehension or this um, digesting, discernment. So there's a, so th- it's like the mind's really getting the understanding or I should say wisdom in the mind is really connecting and discerning. 
And so we're, this first step is all about seeing the mind, the nature of the mind, not affected, not distorted by concepts that we have. What is the experience of the mind in and of itself? And all of that is liberating enough, but it's really ultimately just setting in motion a more simple and profound study of the mind. Because once we're able to sustain that, like see the mind in and of itself, observe the mind in and of itself, one mind moment after another, then we can see how the mind changes. That the different mind moments are literally different minds. It's quite amazing to see that. And we can see how the mind becomes a different, you know, kind of unfolds in a particular direction, maybe more scattered or more unified, more bright, more dull. And because we can observe it mind moment by mind moment by mind moment, we, the mind, learns something about what is supporting it going, unfolding in that direction. Why is it getting, like, how is it getting more settled, more unified? What's happening? How is that happening? It sees it because it's moment by moment. It sees the supporting factors that are part of it becoming more settled or part of it becoming, supporting it becoming more distracted. And this is the second stage of mindfulness. So whatever we're being mindful of, the Buddha teaches these three stages. First, we have to learn to see things in and of themselves. Not in terms of any thoughts we have about the object that's being known. It's just this, and then this, and then this. And then if we can sustain that, seeing things in and of themselves, then the way it's described in the passage is the seeing the arising factors and the passing away factors. But I think what this is pointing to, and what other teachers say as well, is that we're really seeing, it's really allowing the mind to, be, to skillfully participate and how the mind is unfolding. This is such, this can be a really empowering time in practice when we've learned how to participate with the mind. And so it's like the mind knows how to get settled. In the same way, I mean, we're pretty, we we could probably write down instructions like how to disturb our mind. You know, bring this image to mind and then when you're holding this image in mind, think about this, right? And when that, when that emotion arises, really tune into the unpleasantness of that, you know, and then notice how you want to rethink, bring that image back to mind and then get that feedback mechanism going between the pain and the image. And we could you know, we'd have a really good recipe for agitation. So why doesn't it work equally for settling the mind down? It does. We just have to be, we just have to break it down. And we break it down by observing. But we have to observe with continuity and with this particular perspective, mind moment by mind moment by mind moment, each mind moment conditioning the next mind moment, 
and then the different qualities of mind that are there in those mind moments. And when certain qualities are there, the mind has a tendency to unfold in a particular direction. I mean, it's more simple than I'm describing it. Like, um, if there's impatience, you know, it's really interesting while we're there observing the breath coming in and the breath going out. And we're aware of the sensations of the breath, body in and of itself, aware of the feeling tone in and of itself, aware of the mind in and of itself, right? And the maps, right? One of the maps is the map of the hindrances, right? So there, oh yeah, irritation, impatience, that's aversion, right? Understanding, oh, that's one of the hindrances. And then connecting the sort of seeing the mind, seeing the hindrance in the mind, feeling the unpleasantness of it, right? Here in the awareness of the breath coming in, that's the body breath going out. All four foundations are right there. Four foundations just mean this, or dharma, or the body and mind, right? That's all that four foundations mean. They're just talking about this, the body and mind. Me, you, what we you know use our personal pronouns. We're just talking about dharma, the way it is. And so then... You know, we can notice that, oh yeah, so there's that hindrance of impatience, which is really aversion, and the mind, and the feeling tone, and the body. And look at things are getting disturbed. You know, things are not stable. Mind is not clear. Feels like there's a person having a problem. Feels like I should think about that person who's having a problem. Right? Maybe believe the thoughts, like, why does this always happen to me? I've been med- meditating so long. Why is it like this again? So observing that is like, that's called insight. Oh, I see, I see how this whole mess, this whole entanglement, I see the ingredients of it. I see the whole recipe. It's perfect, right? It's lawful, what just happened, that whole dynamic. And it's the same thing with the settling process, like the sincerity, you know, these different qualities. We talk about ardency, diligence, discerning, like really connecting, really understanding things as they are, not conceptually, intellectually, but immediately, intimately. And that continuity, it's like keeping it in mind. That's really, in this more technical way, that's what mindfulness means. It's like, no, honey, we're keeping this in mind. And what is this? This is dharma. Whatever angle on Dharma it is, feeling, tone, body, you know, the five senses, the mind that knows it, one of the maps that helps illuminate those other three things, a body and mind, whatever angle it is, keeping it in mind. We're not forgetting it. Basically, not letting the mind get caught in its thoughts about this. So that any thoughts the mind has is bringing the attention right into things in and of themselves. So it doesn't mean there aren't thoughts. It just means the thoughts are supporting this process of uh, intimate, non-conceptual connection. The thoughts aren't distorting what's being known. Right? I mean, there could be the thought, just this. You know, hopefully, a thought like that. I mean, it could be confusing, but 
and lead to proliferation. But hopefully, you know, the way you coach yourself, the way that the mind uses words in your sits, or more generally in your life, hopefully they're aiming or bringing the heart, the attention, into this cauldron of, you know, these three instructions in and of themselves, then sustaining that so we see how things arise and pass away. That's the second stage. We're seeing the unfolding nature of dharma, this. How we go to hell and how we go to happiness at different times and how it's always changing. Things are always unfolding, always unfolding lawfully. And if we're there practicing with the second stage, we're gaining skill at how to participate with the lawful unfolding of what we call the body and mind. Because there's always a present moment input. It's not a deterministic model. A lot of times people mistake the teachings on karma that, you know, that what has happened has been determined by everything past. But what the Buddha teaches is that what's happening now is determined by the past and the mind that knows this right now. Both things. So we're always the mind, the knowing mind, is always participating in how this is. Dharma, the way it is, is a combination of what's showing up from the past and the mind that knows it right now. And so, using the mind to see the mind that's knowing it right now changes things. It's like, that's our salvation. We're using the mind to study the mind, and we're noticing as we observe this mind that when the mind knows this present moment experience with aversion, it's like this. And when this knowing mind knows the present moment, whatever it is, the breathing in or whatever it's knowing, with non-aversion or love, then it's like it's a different reality, right? It sets something different in motion too. It's not only a different moment in that moment, but that difference then conditions the next moment. So we have a different future. Not only do we have a different present moment, we have a different future. So we really want to, and, and it's okay to feel a little bit floundering. And generally speaking, remember it's more simple than you might think, or it's always more simple than you think it is. <laughs> Right, this mindfulness of mind. Because it's it what we're really figuring out how to do what what we're really figuring out to do is how to be aware that there's a mind knowing whatever is being known in the moment. And it's like a different dimension, right? That we can be aware that there's a mind knowing this. And that it matters how the this moment is being known. It matters, but we it's not we're not there to judge the mind that's knowing the moment. We're just the mind is the practice in a sense is aware and aware and aware 
And that's what changes things. It's that it's like inserting a mirror in this process. That's all we're doing. We're inserting a mirror, and that mirror allows for change to happen. Because the mirror, especially at the second stage where we see the lawfulness of what unfolds, like how calm, concentration, bliss, forgiveness, patience, you know, all these healing qualities, gratitude, appreciation. When we see how these come to full bloom in moments, right? The mirror is just reflecting the lawfulness of how that happened. So it reflects it. So the mind going forward is now the mind that was aware of how this unfolded. So now the mind knows how that all happened. Just in the same way if we go into some negative state, negative reactive state, but there's awareness, right? There's that mirror as the mind descends. Then that mind going forward is the mind that has received that information like, oh yeah, when it's like this, there's this descent into hell, hellish state, and it lasts for a while. So that's the second state. This is um, in the web page, what I'm going to read now. Um, there's a couple places. I think the, the way I quoted it in the, on our Buddhist Studies web page is from Wings to Awakening, but it's, there's a very similar passage in... Um, Ajahn Tanisaro's collection of the discourses, um, which is called um, Handful of Leaves. And then in the volume on the um, long discourses of the Buddha, sort of the long version of the Satipatthana Sutta is there. But you'll see it. It has um, Ajahn Tanisaro's description of the four foundations. And you'll see something very similar. So this is him talking about this second stage, tracking your how things are unfolding. If the, origi- if the origination and passing away is of neutral events, such as the aggregates, the mind and body, one is directed simply to be aware of them as events and to let them follow their natural course so as to see what factors accompany them and lend and lead to their coming and goings. However, when skillful or unskillful mental qualities, such as the factors of awakening, so if you don't know that list, that's mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, and the hindrances, greediness, wanting, aversion, too much energy, restlessness, too little energy, sleepiness, and doubt. That's the fifth. However, when skillful and unskillful mental qualities such as the factors of awakening or the hindrances arise and pass away, one is encouraged to foster the factors that strengthen concentration or jhana and eliminate factors that weaken it. This means actively getting engaged in maximizing skillful mental qualities and minimizing unskillful ones. We're participating 
we see and then the mind responds based on what it's seeing, right? But it's not so much that you do that. When you see, you know, the mind that's impatient, you're breathing in and you notice that the mind is impatient and you're breathing out and you notice the mind is impatient. And when the mind sees that impatience as it is and sees what's getting set in motion, what intervention arises out of that clear seeing? Be interested in that. What, you know, maybe hating yourself. And then see what's the effect of hating yourself for being impatient, judging yourself for being impatient. And see what that sets in motion. Right? And then when you see what that sets in motion, maybe you forgive yourself. And then you see what that sets in motion. So that's what that mirror, that feedback loop does. And that's how we participate. It's not that we generate a sense of a self who's going to figure it out intellectually, come up with a plan, and then implement the plan. It's more about, like we're studying a natural process in the same way that a naturalist, so observing a dynamic, you know, going on in some little ecosystem, and how, just an observation, how the system itself keeps itself in balance just observing the natural forces that are there. But there's something about being aware, this mirror-like quality, that really um, allows the mind sort of allows the mind to be skillful in a way that it can't when there's not that reflection going on. Let me just finish this paragraph here. One is encouraged to foster the factors that strengthen jhana and eliminate the factors that weaken it. Jhana, again, is just the unification of mind. This means actively getting engaged in maximizing skillful mental qualities and minimizing unskillful ones. One thus develops insight into the process of origination and passing away by taking an active and sensitive role in the process. Right? So it's not passive. The mind is actively involved just as you learn about eggs by trying to cook with them, gathering experience from your successes and failures and attempting increasingly difficult dishes. And then this is the interesting part which leads us into the third stage. This stage, um, so what's said in the sutta is, um, or one's mindfulness that there is the mind, feeling, or any of these four establishments of mindfulness, or one's mindfulness that there is a mind is maintained simply to the extent of knowledge and recollection, and one remains independent, unsustained by not clinging to anything in the world, right? not clinging to the mind and body. So this is sort of interesting. In the middle part, we're really, in a sense, this, you know, there's a sense of becoming more skillful, understanding how the mind settles into samadhi, understanding all the ways the mind sabotages itself and always ends up worrying, always ends up planning, always ends up in another fantasy. I mean, I'm sure you've noticed this. I mean, we might be really sincere. You know, there's somebody giving us instruction or we're just sitting silently 
and we're really sincere. We really want to do it right. And there we are again. Complaining mind, worrying mind, planning mind. And then we catch it. We skillfully put it down and we find that sincerity again. And then we end up there over and over and over again. And then you do it for a year and then 10 years and then 20 years and 30 years, right? And then at some point, Something should arise, some kind of humility that there must be something going on that I'm not seeing. Like, how do I always end up here? And that's what I meant about interest. Like, we have, the mind has to be inspired to follow these instructions. Like, we have to see the mind, the body, the feeling in and of itself. We have to sustain that enough so that there can be this tracking where we're really seeing one thing leading to the next, the natural unfolding of the mind, so that we can begin to participate in the skillful unfolding and understand something about the unskillful unfolding. We actually see the mind digging a hole for itself. We see the first moment the mind thinks about the shovel you know i want to i catch myself now like um when my mind is bored or something in my sits it's like there are a few places traditionally you know now 35 years or whatever it's been it's been a long time that i've been sitting almost every day and so my there's these places the mind will go you know whatever the fantasy might be or the planning mind might be projects that the mind likes to sort of work on, like a hobby, you pull it out when there's nothing to do, seemingly nothing to do. And uh, But there's always a moment before that moment, you know, where you're into the content, into the fantasy or the problem solving. Well, what's that moment? Right? What conclusion has the mind drawn that leads it to believe it's rational, useful, to think about something that has nothing to do with what we're doing, which is, you know, observing the mind, being aware of the mind. What is it that makes it seem that planning our life, solving problems on in our external world is the thing to do? So it might be doubt, like doubt in the relevance of the work that we're doing. That's often the case. We don't have enough faith about how powerful this practice is. So then, you know, then it's useful to re-inspire ourselves or to talk to somebody who's on fire, like, no, no, amazing things have changed in my life because of this practice. You know, and then we sort of catch that inspiration. Really? Let me check. Let me check again. So what he what Ajahn Tanisaro says he, about this third stage, so we can see things in and of themselves, see them enough so we can track how things unfold skillfully and unskillfully. And then something happens, like as we observe how things unfold skillfully and unskillfully enough, we learn something about how to participate. So the second stage is all about that we can participate in either a skillful or or not so much that we can, that we are participating in skillful and unskillful ways. That's that present moment input to karma. 
Right? There's always a present moment input. The mind that's knowing is the present moment input. So then the mind starts to learn something about that present moment input. And this is Ajahn Saro talking about that learning. He says, this stage corresponds to a mode of perception that the Buddha in the Middle Link Discourse is terms entry into emptiness. Thus one regards it, he's quoting the Buddha there, thus one regards it, this mode of perception, as empty of whatever is not there, whatever remains one discerns as present, there is this. Right? So this is a very simple, knowing now there's not someone trying to master what's skillful, abandon what's unskillful. It's like a more radical, there's just this, Everything's happening on its own, just aware, letting everything happen on its own. He says, this is the culminating equipose where the path of practice opens to a state of non-fashioning. Right? We're not trying to make, there is no part of the mind trying to make something happen. And from there to the fruit of awakening and release. At first glance, the four frames of reference um, Satipatthana practice sound like four different meditation exercises. But this discourse makes clear that they can all center on a single practice, keeping the breath in mind. Right? Because it doesn't matter what the training ground is, whether you use whole body, whether you use hearing, whether you use, you're using walking. What matters is that as you're using whatever you're using, like awareness of the breath, that you understand that breathing in is like this. There's the physicality. There's the feeling tone. It's being known by a mind that's like this, right? So we're just opening to the experience as it is, to the dharma of it, the way it is. That's the important thing. And that we discover the present moment input it matters. The mind that's knowing matters. And the more we study the mind that knows, the more we, the mind realizes that radical release. Like even releasing the desire to be skillful. But you see, the release of the desire to be skillful, like the to be skillfully setting emotion samadhi. The release of that comes from becoming competent at participating in ways that support settling and avoid scatteredness and distractedness and reactive patterns, right? We get competent enough and that competence allows for more clarity, more settledness. And the more settled the mind understands that a lighter touch to the participation seems to work better. And that allows the mind to settle. And in that more settled mind, the mind realizes, you know what? A lighter touch works even better. right? So the mind has a lighter touch. The participation, the sort of teasing out of the one who's meditating is a natural process. Just because somebody told you to stop meditating, like, you know what the real secret to meditation is? Don't meditate. The meditator is the problem. But see, it's, it doesn't help to be told that. 
Because the mind, it has to be this natural process of observing the present moment input of the meditator, of the guy who's meditating, trying to settle the mind down, trying to avoid picking up the things that it worries about or that it fantasizes about. It's in observing this over and over again that the mind realizes naturally, organically, as a natural process, what that light touch, what that release is. So that there's awareness with no agenda, basically. Radical presence, so still, it's not complacent, it's not, oh, it's fine, I don't need to do anything. So it's like we've, the sense of somebody being present has been gradually teased out, so all that's left is the presence. And that's the experience of release. And these are the three stages of our practice. And in the tradition, they make a big deal. Like I said, in this discourse, which is you know a pretty important discourse in the tradition, it's repeated, this passage is repeated three times, instructing us to train the mind to see things in and of themselves, free of the distortion that comes from our concepts. So we can track this present moment input, which is the mind that knows, which is really what our training this go-round, this you know, first part of this course is all about, getting to know the mind that's knowing, the mind that's knowing. How is it colored? What's the coloring of that mind? What is it, partic- or what is it contributing? The mind that knows, what is it contributing in this moment? Because it is contributing something. What is it contributing? What is getting set in motion right now? Peace or agitation? I mean, really on that level is enough. I think I mentioned that before. And there are different ways that we can contribute in the direction that we'd call skillful and contribute in the way that we'd call unskillful. And we'll get you know, more sensitive to the different ways the mind is skillful, ways that it's unskillful. But initially, we just want to get a sense of, is the mind participating in a way that's leading to release or to stress? It's really that, that simple. That's that middle stage. And then the third stage will just evolve when it evolves. The more that we have more competence at that second stage, the more we'll see that a lighter touch is the way. Heavy hand is not the way. So effort, the quality of effort or the wisdom of effort is refined by observing the mind knowing, how the mind is knowing, the charge of that mind, the coloring of that mind that knows. So right now there's a mind that knows, right? that knows this, you know, and just without judging it, it's not about judging it, it's not about fixing it. It's just given that there is this mind that's knowing this experience, what kind of future or what kind of what is getting set in motion, what's being supported? Like, for example, if there's a little dullness in our mind, which would be not uncommon at the end of a long day for many of us, you know, that dullness in the mind, that heaviness in our mind, 
hearing my the sound of my voice again and again. You know, it's like that might set in motion doubt. It might set in motion a kind of a very um, pervasive view that life is hard or life is complicated. You know, it could be reinforcing all kinds of fixed ideas. And it's not so much the dullness, but the not seeing the dynamic that's at play that causes the problem. Because seeing the dullness could just as easily be the cause for real insight, liberating insight. Like, it's just dullness. And when it's seen clearly, then what gets set in motion is that seeing clearly is liberating. That's a whole different thing that's getting set in motion when we see the dullness as just dullness. But when it's seen as being me who's dull, me who has a heavy mind, that sets in, di- sets in motion a different future for us. So what kind of future is this mind setting in motion now for us? So we have uh, five minutes or so. It would be nice if there are any questions about this topic. Um, or comments from your own practice that seem relevant to the group that you'd like to share. And uh, Gabe has the mic. Thanks, Maggie. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess I my hand went up first. <laughs> um, <clears throat> well, I feel comfortable that I understand um, this coloring or flavoring of the mind. Um, I, I just I want to know if there's something else, this other thing where because that can be known, that can be known as well, right? I know, or the mind knows, this coloring and flavoring, and I and I hope that that's just enough. I notice that my mind is contributing to this moment with a particular attitude, um, but this other thing, this. Um, uh, what it, what is it that's knowing um, that attitude? Sort of uh, these some of these exercises that we get, where we try to notice the uh, space in the room rather than the objects that we typically pay attention to, because the attitude is could be considered an object. That's an object that's being known. Yeah. So I just want to see. If there is this other thing, and I should try to practice that as well, or can I just be happy and content with the practice that I have, which is noticing the flavoring or the attitude in my mind? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the what we talked about last week, you know, the space of the mind, it's really helping to uh, make the distinction that in any moment. And this is considered like the first, in, you know, the, in the very uh, um, systematic progress of insight that's used, for example, in the Mahasi tradition, that progress of insight. The first real insight is understanding that every moment is simply an object being known. So there's uh, an experience and it's being known. And it's always these two things. Any moment of our life is always the same thing, an object being known. And this is similar to the Thai forest tradition. There's the space of the mind and the activity of the mind. And so uh, talking about 
whatever you know words we use, talking about the space of the mind, or talking about that the, there's things are being known, right? Awareness is knowing the object. So whatever we do, we're just supporting this initial insight to break the addiction we have to um, sort of seeing the external as the world. But actually, the world is always something is being known. That's our world. And, and it's really the beginning of Dharma practice. So a lot of what we're doing in Dharma practice uh, is we're setting, enough, setting up enough internal honesty and stability of attention to realize, actually, that's true. There isn't this world as we normally think of it. There's just something being known. Something being known, something being known. And <clears throat> we can understand that intellectually, but when we really get that initially, it's really, it's really kind of earth-shaking to realize that the conceptual idea that I live in Minneapolis and that idea of the world, you know, that sort of we, we call it our consensual reality, that's a, that's a really, uh, it's just not uh, a useful spiritual starting point, right? Because it, it takes us in the wrong direction. And so we're all trying, like in, on this path, we're trying to get to the point where we realize from a subjective point of view, what this is is something being known. And teachers talk about it in different ways, but they're all pointing to the same. We're trying to support the same insight where the mind recognizes this basic truth that that's actually what's happening here. There's something being known. It's never been more than that, and it will never be anything but that. It's just something being known. Uh, thanks, Matt. Maggie, you want to go next? Take the mic, please. In the beginning of the uh, guided meditation, uh, you talked about notice whether notice whether we're feeling greed or anger or aversion, and um, I was having a lot of trouble discerning if it was greed or not. Um, I I could discern if it was irritation or I don't like this, or but with the greed, I wondered well. I would notice if it felt good, and then I would wonder, well, I don't think that's greed, noticing if it feels good. That's not. And then I thought, well, maybe it's when you feel tight about when you feel tight about it. But it's very. I was very confused as to what how, is if greed is just going. I want this to last forever, which I guess was there, or even try. You said even trying. Even striving is greed. And then I thought, well, how do I have this firm intention to stay with it? Isn't that striving? So I'm just confused about that. Yeah. But we're just studying. You know, so don't worry about coming to a conclusion. Just keep observing. And the thing is, if you'll see, like, it m maybe you don't know. Is this greed? I don't know. Is there liking there? You know, does the mind want it to last? But you don't even need to ask those questions. You can just track it. Because if there's greed, then something gets born out of greed. We call it dukkha, right? So 
there's going to be stress. If any of the hindrances are there, there will be stress. It may be too subtle to immediately see, but it will build because the experience of greed tends to set other things in motion. And then other things, you know, so it, we tend to move toward the mind getting bound up. So you, it's okay to know that you don't know. So, and that's basically the approach should be when it appears that there is no greed or there is no aversion, we shouldn't conclude that we're correct. We should just continue to look. Right? And that's what I said a few moments ago. It's nice to kind of hear greed, you know, delusion, too much energy, too little energy. But really what it comes down to is tight or no tight, you know, stress or no stress. Because it's it's really that simple. And then it's just a different, like understanding the dynamic that is supporting the arising of stress or understanding the dynamic that's supporting the releasing of stress. And you might characterize that as abandoning greed or the falling into greed. Yeah, And we need to leave it here. It's 9 o'clock. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.